Wow. Well, thanks for the countdown, everybody. I feel like a rocket ship. Um, good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. It's great to see you all here. And uh, even though I can't see your smiles, because you're all covered up with masks, that's okay. I'm assuming that we've got smiles under there and that you're happy to be here. Uh, if you would uh, just take out your bulletin and uh, especially tear off that communication card and use that to update the prayer requests or let us know anything that's going on in your life, questions, concerns, drop it uh, along with your offering and the plates in the back. We would sure appreciate that. And uh, one thing that's a little different um, this week that we haven't done in a while is I actually printed prayer bulletins and they are out there on the table. If you didn't pick one up, on your way in, you can get one on your way out. I will still continue to email them as I have been. So if that is working for you, you'll still get it that way. But if you'd like a hard copy, we do have printed ones available. You can pick them up out there on the, in the lobby. Um, make sure that you look through the bulletin. We've got a number of announcements in there. Make sure if there's something that might apply to you. Uh, I just want to point out a couple things. I won't go through all of it. But we are planning another baptismal service in the near future. We don't have a date yet, but uh, we will be uh, getting that squared away here pretty soon. But if there's anybody else out there who might be interested in baptism, just let Pastor Tim or I know, and we can uh, fill you in on the details on that. Also, our men's uh, Bible study that has been suspended for like three months, we're finally going to get that going again. That will be at my home. Uh, 7 p.m. and we're going to start uh, on, not tomorrow but a week the next week after um, Monday August the 10th so if you were involved in that before and want to get back involved in it again even if you weren't if it's something you didn't do but you're interested now let us know we'll get you the details we would love to have you be a part of that okay uh, and then there's some other things in there just to take the time to read it and uh, and see if there's something that might apply to you all right, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together uh, as we worship Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the privilege it is to be able to meet. Not everybody is able to do that right now, uh, but we still are, and we're thankful for that. Uh, we also are mindful that there are many people who are still not here uh, for whatever reason, because they're at high risk uh, health-wise or whatever. Um, just pray that uh, they would uh, know that we're still thinking about them and uh, that you would help us to find ways to, to stay connected with them uh, through this time. Uh, we ask you to guide us this morning now as we sing songs of praise to you and we pray and we worship you through the study of your word. Keep us free from the distractions that want to pull our attention elsewhere and help us to focus on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us while we worship the Lord together. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever, for the light. 
especially in the midst of all the chaos that surrounds us right now in the world. And um, it's important also that we just arise and put the armor on of Christ. And, you know, despite the masks that are supposed to shield us now, we know that our true armor comes from Christ our Lord. Oh, church, arise. And put your armor on Be the call of Christ our captain For now the weak Can say that they are strong In the strength that God has given With shield of faith and belt of truth We'll stand against the devil's lies An army bold Whose battle cry is love Reaching out to those in darkness Our call to war To love the captive soul or to rage against the captor and with the sword that makes the wounded whole we will fight with faith and valor with faith with trust 
Nothing surprises you, Lord. And even in the trials that, that you allow us to go through, that that is to strengthen us in faith and in love. Amen. You may be seated. For prayer focus today, I want us to think about what is coming up in the fall and what this is even going to look like. Last year and the year before, we had a program called Converge, where all ages of our church, from cradle to grave, would converge upon the church, and in the beginning, we would all meet together and go through some announcements, some Bible verses, and some worship songs, and then we would break up into our uh, age groups after uh, all of this took place after a meal in which we would all eat together. 
this is going to look different come August or the end of August or the beginning of September, whenever we start, of which is still unclear. It's unclear what it even looks like or how it's going to look. And I decided to have this as the prayer focus because I think as a congregation and body of believers together, we really need to lift this time of ministering to the youth of our of our town and also ministering to uh, our body and any adults that may be visitors from the town as well. Um, I think it's important to lift that up in prayer as a body of Christ. I don't know if many of you saw the uh, one Facebook post I posted this week of a, a man and his fishing pole sticking out there and was wondering if this fishing pole was the first thing that you thought of when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. I mean, the song goes, I will make you fishers of men, right? And they're casting, we teach them at a very young age, to cast a line out there and reel it in. What do you know about the disciples and in Jesus' time about fishing? Did they use poles? And a single line with a worm just waiting for some random fish to come along who felt like it needed a worm and then you snagged the one fish randomly. Matthew four nineteen and 20 says, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their fishing poles at once and followed him. No. And they left their easy chair and their tackle box and their half-eaten ham sandwich and followed him. No. And they woke up from their nap waiting on the buoy to bob up and down to show them that they had a fish. And they saw that there was no fish on the line, so they followed him. No. It says they left their nets. Normally at this time, multiple people would be on the same boat and it would take multiple people to throw out a net together in synchronization so that the net doesn't get tangled because that would be a mess in the first place. They would catch multiple fish to the point where they needed to pull in the nets together. And there's another... There's another reference to scripture where Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. So there's some intentionality on where they throw their nets. What is this going to look like when we start in the fall? Um, Last year, well, the first year we had Converge. Last year we called it Converge 2.0. Um, This year, I'm going to officially name it uh, Converge 2.42. And this is right out of Acts 2.42, where the fellowship of the first believers, and they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Do we have to put one power punch 
into an hour and a half on Wednesday night for it to be a good program? Would it be more beneficial maybe to do something maybe every night of the week but have it look a little bit different? This doesn't have to look the same. I am opening this up for any discussion afterwards. If you have any ideas, please put them on your communication cards because we are seriously considering what this looks like so that we don't abandon the ministry that we had to 50 plus people that were coming every Wednesday night. Right now we have nothing and I feel that there are people being left to wander on their own. We cannot put our hope into programs, especially programs devoid of relationship. The part of Converge that I loved was everybody coming together for the meal and just staying back and listening to the noise downstairs of everybody just talking to each other and fellowshipping together. And that's going to look a lot different, but we can't just rely on the same old program to do the same old things now that times are changing. And I don't think we ever should have. We should never rely on programs to do our work, but we should count the cost of what it looks like to make disciples, to work together, to throw out the nets, and to reel fishes in. Not just one stray fish here and there. But what, does it, what is it going to take this fall for us to throw out nets together and reel in multiple fish with the nets so big that we need multiple people to help disciple all of those fish? So I ask that you pray with me for our Converge program this, this fall, Converge 2.42. And uh, let's, let's just hope that, well, our hope is in, I'm not saying let's hope so, but let's put our hope in Christ that he draws the people here that need to hear the word and that he convicts hearts that need to know him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for organization, for leadership, for workers, for teamwork. We know it's your plan to draw people unto yourself and to save them. Father, forgive us for putting our faith in, in a program and stepping away and not being involved when that program doesn't exist anymore or it looks different. And we pray that you would put on each of our hearts how we can be involved in this new ministry coming this fall with the changes with COVID-19, where we can't meet as large groups very well. And we just pray for your spirit to put thoughts and ideas on each of our hearts that we can share with each other and ultimately seek your will as to where you would have us go this fall. I pray that you would give us the strength, the ability, and the courage to do this. In your name we pray. Amen.
I will worship with all of my heart. I will praise you with all of my strength. I will seek you all of my days. for other people but we need to remember that in order to give our cups have to be full of you Lord it has to be well within our old so our own souls first before we can give to others
different for all of you having somebody different lead um, but I'm going to be doing it much more often now um, I'm excited to to bring the Lord's presence into the congregation in the morning and help him um, through through me and through um, the the gift that he's given me to praise the Lord um, with all of you on Sunday mornings um, may his word transcend through this um, service, and may we all get what we need out of the sermon this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, I trust that as you sang those words this morning that they were more than just
lyrics to a song, and it's something that you can really say in your heart that it is well with your soul. And we know that that's only possible through the, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are now going to uh, open his word and uh, see what he has for us this morning. And I'll ask you all to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. And let's pray and ask him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that we can sing that it is well with our soul because of what Jesus did on the cross. But sometimes we, uh, we come to church and even though we know our eternal destiny is secure, we're heavy burdened in our hearts. There's things going on in our lives that are causing us turmoil. And I pray that uh, as we look into your word today, that we would find some hope, that we would, um, would recognize that uh, it is well with our soul, not because of our circumstances, but because of uh, where our, uh, our direction is headed. And that this message would help us to point towards that. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you remember an old, old television show from the 1960s called Mission Impossible? Okay, good, quite a few. Now, there are some of you, some of the younger folks in the audience today, that may be familiar with the more recent uh, movie version of that with Tom Cruise. Maybe not, but some of you, maybe that's the only exposure you've had. Um, and those are okay. But the movies made a fundamental difference, uh, a change uh, to the original concept of the TV show. See, the modern version, if you've seen any of the Mission Impossible movies, and they're pretty good, you know, in terms of action and adventure and all that, but the, the movies focus on uh, the super spy by the name of Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. And, and he's kind of like the American version of James Bond. He can do everything himself. He doesn't need any help, right? He just tears in there and, and does it all. Uh, but that's very different than the original TV sh- series. If, if you used to watch the TV series like I used to, it always started the same way. The, uh, the impossible mission director, usually Mr. Phelps, uh, he would, he would um, go into some place and he would find this little tape recorder. And the tape recorder would have a message on it to tell him what the impossible mission was. And after he heard it, you know, it, it would uh, self-destruct in five seconds. You, you know, it would uh, like burn up and uh, sm- you know, smoke would come out of it or something like that. But then, immediately after that, you would see him sitting with his portfolio of all the, the people on the impossible mission. And he would be picking out the team that was... Um, Qualified that had the skills necessary to pull off the impossible mission. And you'd see him making choices. Nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Ah, yes, this one. Not him, not her. Oh, this one. And he would assemble a team together. So it wasn't just one super spy doing everything. It was a team of people who had been brought together to pull this off. Well, here we are in Exodus chapter 7, um, which outline for us an impossible mission. And that is to try to convince the head of a world superpower 
that he needs to release from bondage uh, an entire population of slaves that are there to provide free labor for him. That's a pretty impossible task. But God has selected Moses and Aaron as his impossible mission force to pull this task off. And so now as we turn to Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 14, we're, we're pretty much picking up where we left off last week. In fact, uh, we, we're, we really interrupted ourselves right in the middle of, uh, of a story. And um, I think it, it would be profitable for us to do a little bit of review to kind of get back into it again. Last week we saw the battle begin between Moses and Aaron versus Pharaoh. And I used two illustrations to kind of uh, help describe this passage and to apply it to our lives. The first was the, uh, the metaphor of boxing. And that's kind of what this appears on the surface. We got Moses and Pharaoh going toe-to-toe in a series of rounds. And in the first round, which we saw last week, uh, Aaron, uh, they made their demand to Pharaoh. You know, Lord says, let my people go. Then Aaron tossed down his staff onto the ground and it turned into a snake uh, as a way of demonstrating the power of God behind this, this demand to show that he had the power and the right and the authority to ask this. But then Pharaoh's magicians had duplicated the feet. They threw down their own rods and they also turned into snakes. And as a result of that, Pharaoh's heart hardened and he refused to let the people go. And so in boxing terms, we would almost call this first round like a draw. It was pretty even. Um, And so that's why we went to the second illustration, which is probably more accurate, the idea of war. Um, And that there's more at stake here than just the win, than just trying to knock out the opponent. And what God is doing is a series of objectives which are um, steps along the way to a much larger goal. And so this week, as we're going to see, the battle continues. And we're going to see this same pattern repeat itself over and over again. Moses and Aaron are going to make a demand. Um, There's going to be a a sign that is given. And then we're going to see Pharaoh's response. And and we're going to go through like 10 rounds, right? Um, but, uh, But let's look back again at the start of... Uh, chapter 7 to remind us um, exactly what's going on here. So when we go to Exodus chapter 7 verse 3, the first thing we see is that the Lord says that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He is going to do something in Pharaoh's heart to make him resist, which will purposely extend the length of this battle so that it will fully accomplish everything that the Lord wants it to do. And then in verse 4, he talked about the fact that he would bring on Egypt, um, i got to get to the right one here. There it is. Ah, okay, there we are. Um, that he would multiply signs and wonders. Um, and then later on, he would go on to also call, refer to them as great judgments. And uh, we often, when we talk about these rounds, we use the word Plagues. That's what you hear most often, the ten plagues. 
And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, in fact, God will use the term himself later on in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 26. He will refer back to this time as the diseases that he brought on uh, Egypt. Because that's what a plague is. A plague is, is a pestilential disease. Um, and that describes some of the ten judgments, but not all of them. And so I want us to think about them in terms of, of how the Lord described him here in Exodus 7, 3 through 5. He called them signs and wonders and judgments. What is a sign? A sign is something that points beyond itself to something else. And we see a sign on the highway, uh, and it says Chicago, 200 miles. It's, not, it's pointing to Chicago. This is how long you have to go to Chicago. Or you might see an advertisement for uh, a restaurant or a hotel. A sign, it points beyond itself to something else. They're trying to draw attention to this place where you can go and spend your money. A wonder is a, a synonym for a miracle. This is when God suspends the, uh, uh, the laws of nature to do something in order to inspire awe and wonder in us. To make us take note and say, whoa, what was that that just happened? But then the most important one of all is this word, judgment. Each one of these ten plagues are judgments. They are, they are something that condemns Egypt for something that they, that they believe. And so, I'm going to not use the word plague as we go through this. I'm going to use the word judgment, because that's how I want us to be thinking about it. Each one of these rounds is a judgment upon the nation of Israel. Now notice also that in uh, verse 4 here, he says, I'm sorry, back up, it was in verse 3, he said he's going to multiply his signs and wonders. He's, he's not just going to add, he's just going to add one more thing, but he will multiply. Each one of these judgments is going to get progressively more um, uh, stronger, uh, going to have more effect as we go along. It's going to increase in its effects exponentially. And then he tells us in verse 5 that the reason that he's doing this is because he wants the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. So there's more at stake here than just delivering Israel from the clutches of an oppressive dictator. If, if that was all that the Lord wanted to do, he could have done that in one knockout blow. But he wants more to happen than just that. He also wants the Egyptians to know who he is. He wants Pharaoh to know and acknowledge who he is. And that is why he drags this out. Now there's a number of different angles that we could use to approach uh, preaching these ten judgments. Um, and each, each different way that we could come at it would be profitable for us. The most common way that people come to this text is they, they focus on the judgments themselves and what they mean as attacks on the Egyptian culture and the false gods that they believed in. And that's true. And if we did that, we could, we could profit from that. There would be some value in looking at it that way. But I'm going to try to keep to the theme of what we're, we're doing here in studying the life of Moses. And so rather than focus on the judgments and what they mean to Egyptian culture, 
I want us to look at them from Moses' perspective. And I'm not going to try to cover every single one of the, the judgments in detail. Uh, so we're going to kind of, we've got a lot of ground to try and cover this morning. We will be skipping around. Um, but hopefully we'll get enough of it that you'll be able to see. And, uh, I, and I would encourage you in your own time to go back and read through the whole narrative from start to finish uh, when, when it's convenient for you to do that. But let's just try and start, um, and, and we're going to look at the first judgment to begin with. It starts in chapter 7, verse 14. Read with me in your copy of the Scriptures. It says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river, with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug around, uh, all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. What we see happening in these judgments, if we reduce it down to its most basic thing, is that what Moses is doing is that he is confronting an antagonistic culture with the truth. Um, It starts with the demand, let my people go that they may serve. We see that in verse 16. Now this is much more than just one person telling another person what to do. There's a lot more going on here. Uh, Notice it says, um, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And this recalls a much more detailed demand that that God made back in chapter 5 and verse 1 when he said, uh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Um, some actually accuse God of playing a little fast and loose with the truth here. Like, like God's telling a little fib. Because we know that God intends a whole lot more than just sending them out in the wilderness to have a feast, right? 
I mean, he intends them to leave forever and, and go into uh, the promised land. So why, does, why is it worded this way? Why does he say, let them go out in the wilderness and hold a feast for me? Um, I, I don't think that God is, is using deception or telling a fib here. Uh, what this is, is what I would call a narrative shorthand. It's not, uh, it's not an exact quote. It's just a, um, a, 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 sh- a short record of a much longer conversation. But it communicates the basic details to us. And when God says, I want you to let my people go out into the wilderness to serve me with a feast, to worship me with a feast. What he's saying to them, to Pharaoh is, hey, these are my people, not yours. And he's saying, I am the true God that they should be worshiping, not you. Um, And this is reinforced as we go through each one of the judgments because we are going to see that... um, very often, Israel is exempted from the effects of what's going on. It's only Egypt that suffers. And that's just another way that, that God is reinforcing. These are my people, not yours, Pharaoh. They are mine to determine what to do with, not you. And I think Pharaoh clearly understands this as we see in the second judgment, which starts in chapter, one, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your, all your territory with frogs, so the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from the people and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now notice, in verse 1, all that Moses says to Pharaoh is, let my people go that they may serve me. But then when Pharaoh responds in verse 8, he says, um, I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So Pharaoh understands what the full demand is. He understands everything that's being communicated in this, not just the short version that we have, let the people go and serve me. So the, what, the, what the Lord is doing through this is he is challenging Pharaoh's fundamental view of himself. Remember, Pharaoh believes that he is God. He is uh, the, the incarnation of the Egyptian gods on earth. And that the Hebrew God is not in a position to tell him what to do. But God, through these judgments and through the ministry of Moses and Aaron, is challenging this view of himself with each and every successive judgment. And so what he is doing through Moses and Aaron is he is um, using them as instruments 
in the Redeemer's hands. Now, I, I worded it this way very uh, specifically. In fact, to be perfectly honest, full disclosure, I, I stole this. as the title of a book that I've been reading recently, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Um, and the reason I did that is because uh, not long ago, you, the way we would normally say this is, and the way I have normally said it is God using us or God using somebody. And I had somebody challenge me on that wording. And they said, you know, I, uh, I, I don't really like it when you talk about God using somebody. And the reason they didn't like it that way is because they had been, it, it, it sort of recalled negative experiences they had had in their life where somebody had used them in a, a manipulative uh, sense. Um, they had, uh, it, it had been, uh, the intention had been to uh, take advantage of them. And I want to be sensitive to this. I don't want to use the language that will bring these negative images in somebody's hand. But the truth is, it doesn't change the essential truth. God does use us, but He doesn't do it in a selfish way like some people do of others. He's not trying to manipulate or take advantage of us. But when I say God uses us, we are His instruments. We are His conduits through which his power works through us just like Mr. Phelps assembling his impossible mission force right so when God uses us you you can think of it this way think of it uh, like a coach on a football team and uh, you have a very specific situation it's fourth down and inches and uh, there's not enough time left in the game to punt it away. If you give the ball back, the game's going to be over. You have to go for it. So what does the coach do in a situation like that? Well, he sends in a specialist, uh, like maybe a 300-pound fullback, right? Somebody that he could just hand the ball to who's going to pound that thing in there and try to move that ball the couple of inches that he needs to get the first down. The coach is using that player in that specific situation. But that's not a negative. Um, it's, all, it's saying, I have the confidence that this person is the right person for the job. They have the skills necessary to get the task done. Now, unlike a coach, God actually goes one step further because he actually goes with us and empowers us. So he doesn't just leave us to do it all by ourselves in our own strength and our own skills alone. But try to think, when I say God uses us, or we're his instruments, think of it in that sense. Don't think of it in the negative sense. Now, you and I have not been called to be God's instruments the same way that Moses and Aaron were. Uh, He's not calling us to use signs and wonders to change all of history. I suppose that could happen, but in my life it hasn't happened yet, okay? Generally, when he calls me, it's, it's much more, more simple. But if you think about it, the gospel should have the same effect, shouldn't it? I mean, when we, um, when we share the gospel with somebody, it should uh, challenge them, those who are antagonistic, uh, to, uh, to their understanding of who they are and what they believe. Think about the components of the gospel. What are they? Well, number one, 
I am a sinner. How many people believe this anymore? It's becoming less and less, right? People are perfectly, oh yeah, I mean, I know I make mistakes, but I'm not really that bad. I'm actually, you know, a pretty good person. And we say, no. The gospel says you're a sinner. Number two, because you're a sinner, you are on your way to... uh, uh, an unpleasant eternity of judgment and, and um, suffering. And not only that, but you deserve that. Well, there's even fewer people who believe that today, right? I mean, there's even some Christians in the world who, who don't even want to believe in hell anymore. I actually once heard, I went to a, a, a church with a family member one time and with my own ears heard the pastor up there preaching and he said, no, hell's closed. We don't have to worry about that anymore. There's, there's people that believe that. And, uh, and, and when we share the gospel, we say, no, sinners deserve to go to uh, this place called hell, this unpleasant uh, place of torment, uh, and, and deservedly so. That challenges what they believe. And then we say, in order to be free from this destiny, we have to trust in Jesus. Well, there's a whole lot of people who say they're okay with that one. All right, I, I, can, I can go along with that. I'm not down with the first two, but I'll, I'll, I'm on with that. But when they say that they trust in Jesus, do they, do they really? It, how does it practically work itself out in their lives? Are they really trusting in Jesus, or are they trusting in something else? Are they trusting in them, their own selves, their own, their own goodness, their own good works? These truths challenge everything that our antagonistic culture believes in. And usually the first response when you challenge somebody's worldview like that is that they just reject it outright. Just like Pharaoh does here in uh, chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. In the first judgment, um, as Moses and Aaron lay, lay it out for him, he, he just doesn't buy it. He turns on his heel and goes right back into the house, completely unmoved. But the more we hear the truth and the more the flaws in our own understanding are, are revealed, um, the more we are forced to start taking this stuff seriously. And so what happens is, uh, what begins to happen is what we see in the second judgment, where Pharaoh begins to give in a little bit, right? And in chapter 8, verse 8, he says, he, he goes to Moses and he says, ask the Lord to take away these frogs. So he, he's now starting, to, there's a little crack in the armor. He's starting to um, admit that maybe this God who is doing this, you know, there's, there's something going on here that he needs to take notice of. And that's good, right? I mean, we're making progress. Uh, Pharaoh's not there yet, but he's one step closer. This is what Moses wants, right? But this is where we have to start to understand that we have to beware of ingenuine commitments. It's not uncommon for people to make bargains with God in the midst of a crisis. And we've, we've seen this before, right? Maybe we've even done it ourselves. We get ourselves into a bind, into some sort of situation, and what do we do? 
Oh, Lord, if you just get me out of this situation, I promise I will fill in the blank. And that's kind of what, what uh, um, Pharaoh's doing here. But what normally happens when the crisis is over? Well, let's see. Look at chapter 8, starting in verse 9. It says, Then Pharaoh called... Uh, I'm sorry, that's 8, verse 9. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your, your, your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that, you, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Um, see, this is typical of a false faith. Uh, you say whatever you think God wants to hear. You tow the line for a little while, but then when it's over, we just go back to normal. And this same response from Pharaoh shows up in a number of the judgments. We see it again in the fourth judgment, which is the swarms of fry, uh, flies at the end of chapter 8. Um, look at verse 28. This is, so this is after... Uh, the, the judgment the, of the swarms of, of flies. It's, it's, Pharaoh says, I, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. So we actually see Pharaoh here now trying to negotiate. Right? Okay, I, I'm not willing to give you everything you asked for, but, but let me meet you halfway. Okay? I'll give you some of what you asked for. Um. But then, once again, as soon as he gets what he wants, what happens? Verse 29, Moses said, Indeed, I'm going out from you. I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice the Lord. So now we see even Moses is starting to learn what he's up to. And, uh, and, and he's not necessarily buying it, right? And then in verse uh, 30, Moses went out from Pharaoh and treated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. So he keeps coming to Moses and saying, you know, making some concessions. But then as soon as the crisis is over, right back to where he started again. We see the same thing in the seventh judgment which is the judgment of hail and this, and notice again as these judgments go along they're getting increasingly worse the first like four judgments were kind of just annoying right uh, uh, there's a bunch of frogs getting all over the all over the place or there's a bunch there's a swarms of flies everywhere but they don't really hurt anything but then as we keep going along they get progressively worse the fifth judgment uh, brings diseases upon cattle and the cattle die. And then in the, 
uh, the sixth judgment, we have boils. So now even the, the physical bodies of the Egyptians are starting to be harmed. They're getting these, these painful sores on their body. And in this seventh one, hail, hail is coming down out of the, out of the sky and it's destroying the crops. So not only is the judgment getting worse, but the effects of the judgment, the, uh, the consequences of the judgment are getting worse. And we see Pharaoh doing the same thing. Look at chapter 9 and verse 27. Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. Boy, that really sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, listen to what Pharaoh's saying. He's saying, I'm, I've sinned. Uh, you're, you're righteous and we're not. But it's... it's <laughs> how, how does it end up? What's the result? Verse... Uh, Verse 29, Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. He knows that, that Pharaoh is not being genuine. He's not really submitting. He's not really trusting God. He just wants out of this predicament that he's in. And it says in verse 33, Moses went out from the city, Pharaoh spread out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased. The rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. He hardened his heart, he and his servants, and the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. This sort of response is something that we would expect from someone who doesn't truly believe. But the problem is that sometimes we let them drag us down with them. And this is why we can't compromise God's clear instruction. In the eighth judgment, which is the judgment of the locusts, uh, Moses announced that these, these locusts are going to come and they're going to destroy all the crops that survived the hail. Okay. Some of the crops were destroyed by the hail, but there's some left. And now Moses says, okay, I'm gonna, these, these locusts are going to come and they're going to eat up everything else. So there's going to be no food left. And at this point now, um, the people are starting to get fed up. Look at chapter 10, starting in verse 7. It says, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So now even Pharaoh's own people are starting to turn on him at this point. They've had enough of this stuff. And because of this, probably, um, Pharaoh decides that he's going to try to preemptively bargain with Moses this time. He's not going to wait for the judgment to come. He's going to try to go make a deal with judgment before the judgment comes in so that he can get out of it. Um, look at verse 8. And Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But then he, he asked this question, uh, Who are the ones that are going? And Moses says, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go, 
for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Pharaoh, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now you who are men and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's purpose. See, Pharaoh, these, these uh, uh, conditions are unacceptable. Moses' terms are unacceptable. And he says, look, I, I'm willing to let the men go, but not the women and children, not the livestock. You can't, that, you can't do that. And so the, uh, the judgment comes. He, he refuses to, to, uh, to accept Moses' terms, and a judgment comes. The locusts come, and they destroy all the rest of the crops. And then at last we get to the penultimate judgment, the ninth, which is uh, darkness. And um, this is uh, three days of oppressive, total darkness, so thick, the Bible says that they, you could feel it. This is not just a lack of light. This is something that is weighing on them for three days. And they can't even see their hand in front of their face. But meanwhile, uh, the Israelites, they still have light in their homes. <laughs> this is only happening in the, in the Egyptian homes. And, and we can see it after this ninth judgment, you can start to see that Pharaoh has reached the limit of his endurance. He is at his wit's end. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. He said, okay, I'll release all the people. Men, women, children, all the people can go. Only just the flocks and the herds need to remain behind. Leave your livestock. He, he's had enough. And you can, you can see how the, it, it might be very tempting for Moses at this point to say, you know what? Um, this is close enough. Okay? He's going to let all the people go. We can live without our flocks. We can live without our herds. We can, uh, God can provide in many other ways. And uh, we can head out of town. And then... Once we're gone, it'll be a while before Pharaoh realizes that we're not coming back, but by then it'll be too late. We'll be well on our way to the promised land. And it would be really tempting for, for Moses to kind of accept the compromise at this point. But Moses realizes that nothing but absolute obedience is going to do. And so he turns him down. Look at verse uh, 25. Moses says, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. So he, he draws a line in the sand. He says, No. We're going to fully obey the Lord or not. No compromise. No, no meeting halfway. And you know, I, I think a lot of times we don't really need pressure from the culture for us to compromise God's truth. Sometimes 
we're, we're ready to do it ourselves. And sometimes even with the best of intentions. I mean, let's face it, there is stuff in this book that is not easy to accept. It's difficult. And uh, it's really tempting for us to want to kind of reshape it. Just, you know, let's just make this a little bit more palatable. Let's just kind of thin it out a little bit. Let's not hit everybody with all the full truth. Let's just kind of meet halfway, you know, compromise, make it a little bit easier for people to hear and understand. And that's why I think this is one of the most difficult points of the sermon for us to apply to our lives. Because when we talk about not compromising on, on God's clear instructions, we tend to lean in one of two different directions. On one side, you have the fighting fundamentalists, I'm going to call. And then on the other side, we have uh, this movement, which today is sometimes known as the open and affirming movement. Maybe you may have seen that. When a church talks about the fact, they say we're an open and affirming church. And I'll tell you what that means. So, so on, the, the, on the fighting fundamentalist side, we have uh, the people that want to take the hard line. These are the people that seem like they enjoy the fight and they don't care who gets bloodied in the process. They, you know, bring it on. We'll, come on, we'll take you on. The problem with this is that it comes off very often as self-righteous. Sometimes it is self-righteous. And you know, that kind of fighting with people is increasingly ineffective today. And it's not so much about what they do. I mean... Very often, the people on the fighting fundamentalist side, we agree a lot of times with their, uh, with their doctrine. We, th- we believe the same things they do. Although sometimes they do follow rabbit trails, and I'll get to that in a minute too. Um, but it, it's how they go about it. It's this idea of using the Bible as some kind of a weapon to beat people over the head with. But then on the other side, we have this open and affirming Movement, right? And that is where people are capitulating to the culture in the name of showing the love of Jesus. And so, for uh, so they'll say things like, "Well, we, you know, we need to, we need to love everybody the way Jesus does." And they'll even refer to like uh, Luke chapter fifteen, where it talks about Jesus eating with the the sinners and the tax gatherers, or they might go to. First um, Corinthians nine, where Paul talks about, oh, "I have become all things to to all men, so that by all means I might save some." And they'll use this as a justification and say, "You know, we we can't be judging people; we just have to love people." Well, the problem with this is this not only misrepresents what Jesus was talking about and misrepresents Jesus Himself; it also mi- mischaracterizes what love is. It's not loving to ignore sin to, in order to preserve a relationship. And, and so we have this, these two... And, and I want you to see, this is a spectrum, by the way. This is not like two black and white categories. You're either over here or you're over there. It's a spectrum where you have extremes on both ends and, and moderate, moderates in the middle. Okay, so on the, on the extreme fighting fundamentalist side, you have people who, who will go to the funeral of somebody who's died of AIDS carrying signs that say, God hates homos. Well, we would never do that. But what we might do, more to the middle, is we might, 
malign and denigrate somebody who posts something negative about our favorite uh, politician. Right? And, and, and we'll use words to describe what we feel about that, which basically communicate the same thing. Over on the open uh, and uh, affirming side, the extremes, they'll, they'll conduct same-sex marriages. They'll even ordain uh, people who are practicing homosexuals to be in the ministry. And, you know, certainly I don't think we would find ourselves over there. But what we might do is we might um, not say anything when we know that our best friend is, is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe they even move in together. And we say, well, you know, we, but we like them. You know, they're really actually pretty good people, and they're, they're probably going to get married someday, so, you know, we just won't say anything. We just want to preserve the relationship. We can't compromise the truth of God's Word. Now, I'm not saying we have to go in guns blazing and beat people up, but we have to stand for the truth and do it with grace and love. And we also have to be sure that, that what we're defending is, is truly clear and big, biblical because sometimes we get hung up on these side issues. It can be things like, a style of music or a, a Bible version, translation, what you're preferencing. It, it can be things, you know, in the past. This is not so much a big deal anymore, but once upon a time, uh, going to movies was frowned upon or using playing cards. Or how about tobacco? Let's, just, let's focus on that one for a minute. The use of tobacco. Now, there are people who will get all up in arms about those that use tobacco. And they'll even use biblical... Uh, support, you know, think about like 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, talking about the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, I believe the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's okay for us to apply that by not wanting to put tobacco in our bodies. I don't, I don't smoke. I don't, I don't think we should. I think it's a good idea. But is it a sin? You would have a really hard time backing that up from Scripture. And if you start making that the, the fight with somebody over tobacco, are we making our preference or our application of the Word, are we elevating it to the level of Holy Scripture? we got to be careful about doing that. So we want to we choose our battles carefully. And when we do stand up for the truth, we need to do it with grace. And with love. Now, as I look at these ten, well, nine judgments, we're going to save the tenth one for next week. But I look at these first nine judgments. What really impresses me most about them is the change that happens in Moses through the process. All of these judgments are against Egypt and against their culture. And God even said, the reason I'm doing this is because I want Egypt to know who I am. But who's the one that has changed the most through the process? It's Moses. The Moses that we see here at the end of chapter 10, the non-compromising Moses, the one who says, no, I am not going to negotiate with you, Pharaoh. I'm not going to meet you in the middle. 
That is a far cry from the Moses of chapter 6 who is like, I can't even talk. They're not going to listen to me. Can't you just get somebody else? And I believe that as we submit to God's calling, as we let Him work through us, we are the ones who are changed the most in that process. Even if those that we're trying to minister through, like Pharaoh, remain unchanged, just the fact that we're willing to step up and try to confront our culture with the truth, our faith is strengthened in the process, even if nobody else is. And so as we finish up and try to apply this today, the question that I want to ask is, are you willing to be an agent of change? Some reason it's not advancing there, guys. Are you willing to be an agent of change? Are you willing to confront an antagonistic culture with the truth? Are you willing to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand? Are you willing to be used by God for this purpose? Are you willing to be uncompromising of God's clear instructions and to do it with both grace and truth? I can't guarantee that if we submit to this process, that the ones that we try to reach will respond in faith. There are no guarantees. Certainly, the Egyptians had every single opportunity over and over again, and right up to the very end, they remained steadfast in their refusal to believe and trust the Lord. Now, they were perfectly willing to go halfway to try and get the consequences removed. But they never put their faith and trust in God. And just like, like Pharaoh, the ones that we try to minister to, they might persist in their unbelief to the bitter end. But I do believe that like Moses, we can be changed by this process. And every now and again, as we engage with people, as we attempt to confront our culture with the truth of the gospel, every now and then someone will be impacted by our efforts. And when that happens, it will make it all worth it. Our Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for this passage of Scripture, for how it reveals to us your, your strength and your power, that you are the God of the entire universe, not just of, uh, of Israel or those nations that, uh, that accept you as God, but you are, you're the God of everybody, even uh, the pagan nations that believe in false gods. But more importantly, I'm impressed at how, how you have worked through Moses in this process. And up to this point, Moses has largely been reluctant. He's been somebody who, who tried to do it his own way and that failed. He tried to run away and, and he tried to get out of, of this calling. But now we're starting to see a new Moses emerge, one who, who's bolder, who has more confidence and who will begin now to trust you and to take leadership 
I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do the same, that we would respond to your call, not because we want to see success, not because we want to have things happen that we can pat ourselves on the back for, but rather, regardless of what happens, so that we can be changed and grow through the process to become more like Jesus Christ. And that we will be pleased to give you all the praise and glory that you are due in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, are we ready for change? John 1.12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What that verse doesn't talk about is it's awkward and it can be painful and sometimes you really feel out of your element. Um, earlier, when I was talking between songs, I, I was feeling really awkward and I was really uncomfortable and I was like, why did I say that? Why, why did I say the things that I said? I just felt silly. And then after the, the sermon, I realized that I was playing right into what God was speaking through Pastor Sean, being used by God. And it's not comfortable. It's never going to be comfortable. It's not easy to follow God's will, ever. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes us grow. And growing sometimes isn't easy. But God gives us the strength to live for him and glorify his name if we just allow him to. So if you guys will stand with me and sing the final song, Your Name.
is a shelter like no other your name let the nation sing it louder because nothing has the power to save but your name is a strong and mighty tower your name is a shelter like no other your name the nation singing louder Nothing has the power to sing but your name. thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminding us that trials will come, Lord, and that, and that that's okay. It's okay to be in trials and in the middle of, of the storm, Lord, that, that we remember that you are our strong and mighty tower, that there's nothing that you bring us to that you won't get us through, and help us to remember that in the middle of everything, in the middle of trials, in the middle of plagues, that you are God and that, that you are the one that will get us through this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.